0: Hey, welcome to the 5th of July night school. It's too bad we can't just repeat 4th of July over and over again. You know, Groundhog Day came up in a recent episode, and obviously that's about repeating not just a certain day over and over again, but a I guess, I, I don't know, is Groundhog Day a holiday? I was about to say repeating a holiday. It might as well be. I mean, I don't need the law. I don't need the federal government to tell me what a holiday is. It sounds like Groundhog's Day is a holiday. It's a day that we all know about. So he's reliving this event either way. He's, he's reliving a day where there's an event. Could be the county fair. That's a holiday too, if you ask me. The county fair, when, it, when the county fair comes to town, that's a holiday too. Everything's a holiday to me. But repeating the same day over and over again, if it was an even bigger holiday though, if it was like 4th of July where every single night you hear fireworks Like part of the list of things he has to do, you know, in Groundhog Day, he has to learn. He has to figure out that he has to do certain things, save certain people, be in the right place at the right time to crack the code. It's like he has to drive around and put out fires that have started because of random fireworks going off in the woods, just different things. Be more stressful. That would be a more stressful Groundhog Day. But they could have just kept upping the ante. They could have done a whole series of Groundhog Day where you just have somebody relive a different day over and over again and explore all the different facets of it. A baby who's just born gets sucked into (laughs) the—that'd be my movie. If I made a sequel to Groundhog Day, you'd have a baby, and it's the day of their birth, and the baby has to repeat that over and over again until they figure out what they're supposed to do. But the catch is it's a baby, What can a baby possibly do to crack the code? So that baby just stays in purgatory forever. Every once in a while, there's something like, every once in a while, the machine malfunctions. Whatever that machine is that made Bill Murray and Groundhog Day repeat the same day over and over again. And, you know, I can believe that's happened to many people. Uh, But, you know, the same machine that makes that happen, the same force it does that to a baby, and that's like when the machine malfunctions. It's like, oh, fuck, you we accidentally did it to a baby, and a baby can't possibly learn anything or do anything. The baby's confined to a hospital. Or it turns out, no, actually, you know what? That baby wouldn't just be able to do nothing and be stuck in purgatory. The baby would have to, like, figure out different things. Like, like when it's in the, um, the nursery, it would have to figure out, like, what other babies are doing. I don't know. Who knows? I haven't thought this plot out. I'm only saying it out loud right now just to, to patent it. Do you patent movie ideas? Anyway, moving on. This is going to be a random fireside chat style episode. Not that normal episodes aren't, but I really have no particular theme or goal today. And sometimes that's better. You know, with all the dating talk on this show recently, now that this has become a dating advice column, and it is a column. In case you're not aware, this show is a column. Just because I'm saying it out loud doesn't make this any less of a column. But because this is now a dating advice show, something that crossed my mind was watching how couples over my lifetime have increasingly developed this attitude that your significant other needs to share your interests, needs to share your beliefs, your political beliefs for one. I can understand deeper beliefs, I can understand deeper religious or philosophical beliefs, I can understand wanting them to share those. And I don't feel that's shifted as much. If anything, I think people have become more lenient. I mean, they certainly have. People have become much more lenient about dating somebody of a different faith, or ethnic background for that matter. But a couple things that I've noticed too, with that are this expectation that the person that you the person that you handcuffed yourself to, uh, that they share your political beliefs, because I grew up, maybe it's just a suburban thing. But growing up in the suburbs, and this isn't limited to my childhood, from knowing different people and talking to different people, this seemed to be fairly common throughout the US, at least, where dads tended to lean more right. I mean, I knew a lot of dads growing up, Including my own, who were small business owners, so for taxes, if nothing else, they leaned right. They were fiscally conservative, if nothing else, and and might have social might have been a little more socially conservative. Maybe moderate it was was more my feeling growing up from knowing just different people, but it seems to be a common a common experience, like at least during the era I grew up, where the dad tends to lean a little more right, and the mom tends to lean a little more left. They're not arguing all the time they're not at odds over it. And the mom might even vote more conservative, she might even go along with it, because the husband says it's the best thing for the family. Is that the right way to be? I don't know. But I just know that on a social level, there tended to be this trend of the dad of the household leaning more right, the mom leaning more left. And keep in mind a lot of the parents that I grew up around were they came of age in the late 1960s. Like my parents graduated high school in 1966. So they were the perfect age to absorb all of to absorb all of the late 1960s early 70s culture, the so-called revolution. They really were immersed in that. And it influenced them in different ways. Like my dad was, I mean, he still is, he leans right, but he's also a, was a big marijuana proponent, you could say, you know, he grew pot. Um, But, and with my mom, you know, she leaned left, but she never took on a hippie persona or anything. You know, she, her joke was always that she grew up on a farm in poverty, why did she need to do that again? Like, why did she need to pretend to be that again? Which I, do, I think is actually much deeper than she even meant it. You know, where I do think a lot of hippies were probably kids who came from decent backgrounds. I mean, if they are anything like those people that I know, uh, I think they probably came from decent backgrounds, (laughs) and we're sort of role playing a little bit. But yeah, her joke was just like, I grew up on a farm in the dirt with nothing, you know, why do I want to go back to that? But she leaned left anyway. And my parents got divorced. So maybe they're not the best example. But a lot of the parents I knew a lot of happily married parents of my friends of different people I've known over the year of the years, just people of that generation, you tended to see this Dynamic where the husband leaned more right, the, the wife leaned more left. They weren't in conflict with each other. When it did come up, you became aware of the fact that they disagreed about some things. But hopefully, it was a healthy disagreement. And I think in a lot of cases, it was. And you also see that with interest, too hobbies and interest just the idea of his and hers. You know, the man does certain things for fun. And the woman does as well. Like she has her own sets of TV shows she enjoys. He has the TV shows he enjoys. Maybe they can get together and watch something together. They probably do. They obviously have some things they enjoy doing together. If nothing else, raising a family. You know, people forget about that one. Like these two people got married, had children. They've cooperated on this high level that's beyond my comprehension given i've never done that so they're cooperating on this extremely high level like ooh you and your girlfriend go out for thai food oh you decide together what to watch on netflix and one of you hides the fact that you secretly hate it oh that's so amazing oh you you talk to each other about your feelings about like what that coworker said to you yesterday Oh, you guys are like totally on the same page. Oh, my, oh my God! Like you guys have everything that a married couple has and more. Like, why even get married or have kids? And then it's like you look at a married couple, and it's like that to cooperate on that level. Like the idea that this is a household we're creating, not just for us, not just a place that looks good when we take pictures of it for social media, or not just a place where we can like sit and watch. Netflix we can binge watch while we eat Thai food. You know, creating a household where you're going to raise children that is that takes a level of cooperation, that takes a level of mutual interest that transcends both watching Star Trek. Oh wow, you and your girlfriend both like Star Trek. Oh, your your favorite Star Wars character is is both Lando, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, I'm being I'm kind of being mean here. I'm rallying against it. And this sounds like some sort of like traditional rant, something I'm not, I'm not even traditional at all. i I'm not I wouldn't I shouldn't say that I'm traditional in many ways. But I'm not I'm not somebody who's like, we need to go back to tradition. We need to go back to the old ways. You know, I'm not even one of those people. I'm a mutant of the era that I was born into. But, you know, you see that like where like what people have prioritized in their lives. And you can look at these married couples and people will say like they have nothing in common and they'll even say that about each other. And maybe they aren't meant to be together. Maybe a given married couple is truly unhappy and they don't belong together. But sometimes you'll hear that they're like bored of each other and they don't they don't have the same hobbies and interests. And it's like you have the ultimate hobby. You have the ultimate interest together. The fact that you got together and whether it was an accident, you committed to it. You committed to this idea. And there's got to be a part of this that you both like. Like you both have to enjoy the fact that you did the essential thing, which is create a new you with somebody else. You both created a new you out of both of you. Like you have to at least enjoy that. And so the children at the very least are your mutual interest, your home is a mutual interest, but people get distracted by all that stuff. And these people who do put like the traditional nuclear family on a pedestal, forget that like those dads were abusive, they were going out to drink all the time, not in every case. But it's like, you can't just look back at that in some sort of idealized like, oh, everything was just like happy days. Oh, you know, things were better back then. Like my only exposure as a a guy born in 1985, my only exposure to life in the 1950s are old photographs and shows that recreated that in the 1970s. Musicals. Oh, Greece was a musical. Things ruled in the 1950s. I've seen Greece. I see. I seen Greece. You know, it's like, what do you expect things to have actually been like? There were probably all kinds of mundane things that would chip away at you and eat your soul like they do now. That doesn't mean, I I mean, I think there is something to be said for the aesthetics being better back then. I think you can look at the aesthetics, but still, like when it comes to just living life, you have no idea what it was like then. And so that's, it's always funny to me. Like when people look back at what are basically advertisements for the 1950s, like they're basically postcards, And they look back and there's like, why can't we have that? It's like, well, we never actually had that. We never actually had what you're pointing to. So I don't mean to sound like one of those people who's like, you ever heard of having a wife and children? What I'm saying is, to me, this is just an objective fact. And I don't normally use the F word. But to me, this is an objective fact that... There is a higher level of mutual interest. I mean, because everything in life is a hobby. Life is a hobby. Life itself is a hobby. And some hobbies are just more important than others. And I think raising a family. Establishing a household. And like you think about like all the rules and stuff that families have. Like occasionally I'll be at a, a friend's house who has kids And I'll see them just kind of do something that's like setting guidelines for their kids, like just, you know, reminding them of a rule, nothing too strict, but just kind of reminding them. And I'm like, Oh, yeah, that's, that's a part of maintaining a household. Like, I don't have to have rules in my house. Like the rules of my house as someone who lives alone, are just like, you know, put the dishes in the dishwasher make sure things are clean, and in large part, simply because I prefer a clean and organized environment. So even the desire to keep the house clean, like even the structure, even the discipline I have about maintaining my house is based around just my whim and will. Like even though I do a decent job maintaining a clean and organized house, it's still it's something that I want to do, because that's the sort of environment I enjoy being in. I don't have to set up rules for myself. I don't have to set up some kind of like household culture, you know what I mean? It's just whatever I feel like at any given time is the house culture. And I mean, now that I have a dog, he he reigns. He rules and he reigns over the household culture here. But the idea of establishing a family, you know, it's just, that's that's something else entirely. And if you can do that even halfway good, I think that says something. But yeah, there there is this idea, though, even even in non-married couples that I know, where there's this idea that you kind of have to do everything together. And I was talking to a friend about this the other day. He was dealing with a situation where his significant other is is very... uh, Basically, she's jealous of his creativity. And by that, I don't mean his actual ability. I mean the fact that he has to spend time working on it. And that means alone time too. like if he wants to take a Friday night by himself, uninterrupted to work on what he needs to work on. This person was, you know, deeply resentful of that, and sort of retaliatory. And what's funny is the same friend of mine many years ago, we were I was telling him about the same thing with a girlfriend I had where, she was pretty patient about like when I needed to just lock myself in a room to just be by myself and work on something. She was very patient about that. But what sucked is that like it always felt like she was in the other room waiting for me, which is really sweet. Like she's watching TV, doing whatever she's doing on her computer. And I could psychically feel though, that it's like, she's not just in the other room doing what she wants to do. She's just waiting for me to be done so that I can join her. And as I said, there's something sweet about that. So it's not like she's doing something wrong, but it's still just like the dilemma of, I'm not going to do my best work. If my psychic headspace has this little ripple in it, that's coming from what I feel in that other room. And this isn't something that I broke down in my mind and analyzed like I'm doing right now. That's just the sense that I had. Like I'm in my element and I'm inspired to do something. And I'm not, I would say that I'm much less pretentious than a lot of artists get away with. Like, like I don't act super pretentious. Like when somebody's in my life, I'm not like, Oh, I'm inspired. I've got to go do this. You know, I don't, I don't do any of that stuff. I'm just saying I had creative momentum. I I had the urge to do something But to me, the fact that there's this tiny ripple in my psychic headspace where I know, like sometimes pressure is good, but this isn't pressure. This isn't like limitation. This isn't something like pushing you. This is just the fact that somebody wants my time and they care about me. But in this moment, I wish nobody wanted my time and nobody cared about me because I don't want anything entering into this feeling. Whereas if you're completely alone in a house, you can get that you can put your phone in the other room. So anyway, this friend of mine is going through the exact same thing, basically. And it all came to a head. And uh, that's an interesting thing, though, like, like, you know, I don't know, like, you know, you think about like the the husband of the house, having a den. And I feel like everybody should have their own room. Everybody should have a room in a house. If you have the money, if you have the space, everybody should have a room where you can go. I just feel that's essential, or a place. I mean, we. the problem is, is it's like, that would be when you go for a walk, or that would be also when you go out into nature. But sometimes it's you do want to be home and like, w- work on something or just, I mean, for me, it's even just being in that headspace. Like, I'm the kind of person where like, I need a certain amount of time by myself, especially at night, where I'm just Not even doing anything productive, but I just need time to recharge and just not think about anything. Maybe snack as I see fit, like my friend and I were joking about this where I was like those things that nobody ever sees you do, like no matter how comfortable you are with another human being, there are certain things that you don't let anybody else see you do for some people that's like picking your nose or like itching yourself in a gross place and like not washing your hands you know, for me, it's binge eating. Like, I don't believe that I've ever completely indulged. I don't believe that I've ever completely binged around a girl or or a friend for that matter. To the level I have at the level I have alone, I, you know, I, there's no way to me, that would be like going to the bathroom in front of them or something. Uh, Because on occasion, like especially when weed's been in my life, I will get stoned late at night, and that seems to be the time of day. You can go all day and not binge eat. I can go all day without having the munchies. There's something about being in for the night and being stoned that just makes you go for it. And with me, like late at night in that headspace, just like this complete automaton going from the couch to the pantry, not even thinking about it not even conscious of what I'm doing, not even conscious of how much I'm consuming, but it's, you just have this desire to keep going. Keep throwing things your in your mouth, you know, the idea of somebody witnessing that is, it would probably be a deal breaker. I feel like if somebody if I were dating somebody, and they saw me do that, it would probably be a deal breaker It would be disgusting. Like watching my stomach just like bloat. I'm sure it's, this is a really I'm sure everybody's really enjoying this description. Like, hey baby, you want to see my stomach bloat in real time? You wanna see how fat I look in the morning? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, there's some things you just don't want people to, to see, but sometimes you need to do that. Like I need to do that sometimes, but I have to do it alone. In the same way, being creative is something that, you know, is preferable when alone. But I don't know. And I don't know how much of this what I'm talking about right here relates directly to the idea of like having all of your hobbies and interests in common. But more and more, I feel like among my age group, that seems to be what people are expecting of a relationship when that was never really the case. Like, yeah, you do have exceptional stories where a husband and wife are this. They just have everything in common. They do all the same things. Maybe they're even famous in the same way maybe they're both famous artists. But even then, I would bet they steer clear of each other. Even then, I doubt they're in each other's space, because they probably both understand. But then a, a different friend of mine who we were talking about another show that he had listened to on here, he was saying like, he knows that from the opposite point of view. And it's interesting, because he's a man, and he's a bit older than I am. So he was saying how, with his ex wife, she was the creative one. She was a writer, a poet. And so he he was the one who didn't understand that he was the one as as somebody who's not traditionally creative. He didn't understand like the fact that she needed to go off and be in her own psychic headspace. So it shows you that, you know, it goes both ways. It's not just like a man thing. But it's something that as a creative person as someone who's dedicated to anything, I mean, I think it would go for research. Like if you're a researcher, you know, sometimes you have to go off. I mean, think of it like reading. I think this is actually the perfect example. Like when you're reading, you shouldn't have to explain to somebody why they shouldn't talk to you or even put any energy on you at all. Like when you know somebody's reading, that's just leave them alone. They're immersed in another world. Like right now, if they're lucky, if they're not distracted, they are in another world and they are getting to that other world by simply reading text in a book Why would I fuck that up? Why would I say something to them? And there are significant others who will talk to you while you're reading, and that's insane. That is insane. But it's not that people are being deliberately rude. They just don't think about it. They don't think about the fact that right now you're in a portal. You know, you're not just hanging out passively observing something. You're reading. And I think you can look at something like being in a creative zone, working on what you need to work on exactly the same way. You're in a different world in that moment. You know, and I'm not trying to make the creative process sound more grandiose than it is. You're in a different world.
1: Artists enter a different world. They are our guides. You know, artists are our guides to other worlds. You know, I don't want to say that shit, but artists guide us to other worlds Men like Pablo Picasso, Van Gogh, and (laughs) those are the only artists I know. They've led us to other worlds and expanded our vision of the world around
0: us. You know, when people, it's like museum talk. You know what that is? That's some museum talk. I need to say that. When people start talking that way, I need to say, get that museum talk away from me. Next time you're going to give museum talk, do it to the mirror. Museum talk. No, but you know, you are in another world in in the same way that you're when you're in another world, when you're reading a book and that you don't want anything to cross in front of you in that moment. You don't want anything else to get in your space. You don't want to even think about anything else. Because, you know, I've been in that situation with reading, too, where I'm reading something and I feel like someone's waiting for me to finish so we can do something. And it's like, I'm not going to enjoy reading. I'm not going to get the most out of this if you're doing that. And I've probably done that to other people, to be fair. I've probably done that to someone one way or another. I think we've all done it to somebody. And it's, and I think it's nice too, when you do agree with somebody or sorry, when you do, well, yeah, when it is nice when you agree with somebody, but I do think it's nice when you have some hobbies and interests in common with somebody. I think it's true for friends as much as anybody with anybody in your life, because I have some friends who I really don't have much in common with, but over the years I've found, and I used to kind of pride myself on that. I used to pride myself on the fact that I had some friends and it was like, the only thing we have in common is that we both like the same football team, which, yeah, you know, I mean, that's cool. I mean, you could talk about I could talk about football at length with someone. But it's like sometimes, you know, you actually do want to have something in common with the people you spend your time with. It's just that you don't need to have everything in common. But I think when you have this expectation that you have to have everything in common, because I don't, it's not just relationships. Like, even though I started this out by saying that more and more, especially among my generation and maybe younger generations, there's this expectation that couples need to be able to do everything together. They need to like all the same shows, like all the same things, believe all the same things, have the same political views. God forbid one veers one way and one veers the other. I understand if somebody who's on one extreme couldn't be involved with somebody on the other extreme, although I think there'd be something pretty hot about that. Like, imagine that couple. Imagine the the patriot prayer militia man dating the Antifa anarchist with green hair and alternative pronouns. Think about how hot that would be. Think about that. Uh, <laughs> there's probably already a porn about that, right? It's probably already a, a patriot prayer Antifa porn. And I bet it's really good. But no, I, I think that people who aren't on the extremes can easily be compatible. and it, And that used to be more common. But it's not just relationships. It's not just romantic relationships. It's also friendships. You see where Groups of friends have become more homogenous. Groups of friends have, even in what used to be otherwise alternative circles, are becoming more homogenous in their views, in their interests, in the way they look. There's not much alternative except opposites. Like there's not, there's not much that's brand new, that's emerging, other than just becoming the opposite of whatever you are right now. Like, for example, if you're covered in tattoos and piercings and you've been dyeing your hair and cutting your own hair and you have like a mohawk mullet hybrid with like a single dreadlock and like a tattoo above your eye, whatever it is people are doing with themselves to express themselves. You know, if you look that way, the only direction you can really go is to become more conservative, to become more conservative in terms of fashion and the way you present yourself. The only way to rebel against yourself is either to die or to become more conservative. And you can see where a lot of newfound conservatives did exactly that. Well, they might not have come from that extreme. They might not have been the guy, although in some cases they are that person, but they might not be that guy, but they came from a place of thinking they were On the cutting edge, they were thinking that they were the alternative to normal society, and then they probably hit some kind of wall, or they realized there was nothing to be found there. And so what did they do to rebel? They went in the other direction, and I don't know that that's necessarily the right move. I think it's very easy to respond to your current surroundings, to your current situation, to what you're hearing, to what you're seeing, I think it's very easy to see that and be like, I don't like where this is going. I don't like how this is. So I'm going to run as far as I can over there. I don't know that that's necessarily the right way to figure yourself out. I, I don't know. It depends on the person. But, uh, you know, so often though, it's like we, we can only escape our, our deviance. By becoming less deviant, you know, it reminds me of that Anton Levey quote I've mentioned in years past, which is, there is less room for deviance in deviance than any other human endeavor. It's one of my favorite quotes from him. I couldn't care less about uh, at this point about a lot of what he says, but he's an interesting, intelligent guy. I, I, not that I couldn't care less. I just mean, I'm not reading, you know, Anton Levey's writings and going, this is
1: it, guys. This is what I believe. <laughs> I'm a love I'm a Levian Satanist. You know, I'm not I'm a I'm a Levian
0: Satan, you know, I'm not I'm not one of those. I'm just I mean obviously I can get insight from a guy like that regardless of where I fit in with his beliefs. But that quote, there is less room for deviance in deviance than in any other human endeavor. When I read that it just It was a long time ago that I read that and, you know, I'm not very good at memorizing things, but I instantly memorized that because it, it meant, it meant the world to me. It confirmed what I was feeling, but I hadn't had it put into words yet. Less room for deviance within deviance than in any other human endeavor. And that's exactly what I'm getting at with the person who's taken, let's say, body mod to its furthest extreme. Where do you deviate from there? Where do you go? It's what I've talked about before with the tree example, where I use that to describe like the way a musical genre evolves, but it's the same exact thing because a musical genre, and I use the example of death metal where death metal came about and early, early death metal wasn't that much different from, let's say speed metal, which wasn't that much different from just regular old power metal, heavy metal which wasn't that much different from the direction Hard Rock was going. But you can see as you go further back, like as you go further out, as the branch goes further out, you end up with the most extreme. You have death metal, you have... Ideas that were derived from death metal, like you end up with noise core or something, not that that's necessarily death metal influence, but it's like you end up, with, end up with something that's inhuman, indecipherable, played at inhuman speeds, but it doesn't really go anywhere after that. You can really only get more conservative. You can really only like if you are just playing blasting drums with just like a blur of guitar, a blur rumble of a bass a blurry rumble, they call it, they call that the blurry rumble, and then just inhuman gurgles for vocals. Where do you go from there? You know, where do you go? Like, you you can't really take that too much farther. And so you have to start backtracking. And for them to go anywhere else, they can't deviate further. So they actually have to start taking components of what would be considered traditional ideas, you know, oh, we're gonna have to start incorporating keyboards, we're we're gonna have to make this more musical to do anything. And that's kind of what I mean about somebody who's taken like, their self expression to the furthest possible extreme, the only place for them to go is back. And sometimes they go back far. Sometimes they, it's like a rubber band where they just like ricochet back all the way and they go from being like, that person who is covered in tattoos with their mullet mohawk to then actually becoming some sort of conservative. So sometimes the only place to go is opposite, especially when there's nothing new to do. And that's kind of what it feels like now. And I know I'm not alone in feeling that way. Whether it's true or not, that is the feeling right now that there's not a lot of new ways to go. And that's why we're seeing so much hybridization, so much cannibalization. You know, you end up just creating novelty upon novelty, but it goes nowhere. You can you create new novelties and combine them with other new novelties. And that's kind of, you know, a good example of that is what I was talking about earlier about the guy who wears old timey clothes. Or I don't know. I don't know if I brought that up. I, I might I might not have brought that up like the guy who wears old timey clothes in 2006 like there was a guy in my college in the mid 2000s who would wear like bowler hats he probably had some kind of mustache that was waxed and curled he would wear three-piece suits to school and he talked in this old-timey way but he was my age and he was a computer nerd or something you know what I mean he was he thought like he had seen pictures of men in the 1920s and they look amazing Like when you see a photo of like three businessmen walking down the street in a black and white New York photo from nineteen twenty-five, you think, "Wow, men were better then. Men really knew how to carry themselves. They 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 looked like gentlemen in these suits. Look at that posture and the way they talked. Oh my God, the way they talked. Good day." top of the morning, you know, and then so this guy who's trying to recreate that now because he thinks that that's the ideal of men ends up actually being the opposite. Like while those guys in the 1925 photo, while they like look perfect in their suits, the guy who's doing that in 2006 at his college, he looks like a clown. You know, he looks like an idiot. And he's acting like an idiot too, because he's, he's being obtuse. He's, he's talking in this way that nobody talks and it's like, you know, integrate it, learn how to integrate that. Like, don't just try to be a man from the 1920s. And with the effect of being the complete opposite of that, like those guys that you see in the suits, these guys who worked on wall street a hundred years ago, those guys, they're still around. Like, those guys still exist, but they're not wearing old-timey suits. They're not talking like gentlemen. They're not using antiquated phrases. They're just doing what are, they've mutated. They're doing what men always do, which is mutate with the times. And yeah, I think you can look back on those previous eras and say that aesthetically things were better than they are now. You're allowed to do that, and I agree with that. But sometimes people have a tendency to look at that and think, I need to be that. Oh, I need to get an old-timey, curly mustache. Probably not. And you end up making that the entire focal point. Like, back when men actually had long, waxed, handlebar mustaches and wore bowler hats, when they would meet somebody their conversation wasn't like nice mustache dude (laughs) top of the morning to you you know like there wasn't this sense of irony that is there like when someone does that today and it's like integrate the qualities that you admire or that you think you admire because you don't really know what things were like those guys in the three-piece suits might have been pieces of shit you don't know Those might have been the guy, like, in the same way that you probably went through high school, like, hating the jocks, if you lived in the 1920s, you would probably hate those guys, too. And they would probably hate you. (laughs) So why are you trying to be them? If you think they have admirable qualities, if you want to do some form of yoga with the past where you integrate them in with yourself, you can do that. You can integrate that ideal, even. You don't even have to acknowledge the fact that those could have been men who bullied you too, (laughs) you know, just because wearing a three piece suit and acting old timey today is this sort of like cosplay niche, you know, it's I don't know. It's just, you could integrate the qualities that you find admirable about them, regardless of whether you're just projecting on them or what, but don't just start dressing like that. Don't start talking that way. I mean, there's always something miserable about being in situations like that. Like there was a bar here that was themed that way. It was in an old bank vault. And so the name of the bar was, it was named after a uh, a famous bank robber. Everybody knows, but I won't name it. And so it makes sense that they came up with that name and that theme, given that the bar was in an old bank vault and they even had a room with tables in it. That was the literally the old vault. So, I mean, it's a cool idea to have like a bank robbery, old timey theme thing, but there's just something so disgusting. Truly, it, just, it causes my disgust response to kick in when I see somebody doing that, even if they have to. Like, even if it's their job to act like an old timey, like you're wearing suspenders with a, a curly mustache, you know, even if you have to do it, there's just still something so repulsive to me about that particular era and the way that it gets recreated. So anyway, obviously, I'm passionate about this. Um, But, uh, you know, I think integration is something people don't think of often enough where it's like if you see something and you think things were better then, If you have some kind of idealized view, the best thing you can do is just think in what ways can I act out those qualities in my life? Because whether or not I'm even seeing an accurate view into the past or not. I can at least take the ideals and try to act that out. And the end result is the same. And you're also not going to cosplay. You're just going to find a way to work it in because there's a way. There's always a way to integrate things that you believe will be helpful to you. And if you can't integrate them, it turns out they're probably not helpful because you won't have to force it. But, uh, you know, I think sometimes people... I don't know. They focus too much on transforming the outside of themselves. And that's just obvious. I mean, I don't even need to say any more about that. It's just it's the obvious solution. It's why somebody gets a haircut after a breakup. And I'm not undermining that either, because that's powerful. There's something to be said for changing yourself in the face of an event. You know, it's like cleaning your house when you're not feeling good. Getting a haircut after a breakup isn't a bad idea at all. It's a great idea, actually. New hair, new life. But don't think that that's actually the solution. That's just momentum. That's just That should just help guide you the right way. But uh, this ended up becoming a much more focused episode than I thought. I was just going to talk about total nonsense. I guess just to wrap up the last point before we actually descend into other nonsense to wrap up the last point, I see the trend among romantic relationships. I see the trend among friend groups and individual friend friendships where there's a greater need to become homogenous to share the same exact things. And we can see where politically this is especially disruptive. A friend of mine told me recently that like a new guy she was interested in, she found out he was a Trump supporter, that he had voted for Trump. And she's not overly political. Like she's definitely left of center. We don't talk about it. You know, we're good friends, but we don't really get into it. She kind of knows where I'm at. She knows I'm independent. But it's not important. It's not, it's really not important on a practical level when you have just a practical friendship with somebody But finding out, you know, it wasn't a, I don't think it was a deal breaker for her when she found out that he voted for Trump. But it was important enough for her to message me, like when she was telling me about that this thing fell apart. Him being a Trump supporter played a role in that, even though it wasn't all of it. But that's tame by today's standards, you know, I I feel like that's pretty tame. And, you know, there's a lot of these households, too, because, I mean, there's, you know, I wouldn't want to be in a relationship where I wouldn't want to be with somebody. I mean, it, it doesn't like I, and I truly mean any relationship. I wouldn't want to have a relationship with another human being, no matter what the nature of that relationship is, whether it's romance, whether it's friendship, whether it's blood relation, whether it's acquaintanceship. You know, I don't want to have that ever depend on political agreement. If there is political agreement, that's good. But I'm not somebody who would want a wife, for example, who believes everything I believe. Politically, especially, because I don't even know what I believe politically most of the time. I'm always kind of figuring it out. I'm always looking at it through a new point of view. I mean, I have my principles, but I'm always trying to see those, see how those apply in different ways, etc., And so I would expect a wife of mine to not judge me negatively. Even if she disagreed, I would expect her to understand that I'm coming from a rational place that's rooted in wanting a good world, a a better world. That I'm not motivated by anything more complicated than that. Not to say that I... Not to say that it plays out perfectly in what I believe or why I believe it. But still, I would expect basically a presumption of innocence. I would expect a presumption of innocence and a a benefit of the doubt. That's what I'm looking for, baby. Hey, nice to meet you. Uh, My name's Eric and you're beautiful. First of all, you're beautiful. And second of all, I expect a presumption of innocence. And the benefit of the doubt. Let's talk politics, babe. That's how I'm going to start every every interaction with a beautiful woman. I expect the presumption of innocence. And the benefit of the doubt. Just emphasize the wrong words. Give this really fucked up and insane inflection. Hey, baby, you're the first girl I've talked to after quarantine, coronavirus.
1: I expect you to... Give me a presumption of innocence and a benefit of the doubt. Just be
0: a a complete freak from now on. Let it all out. But no, I think that it's nice if you do agree, but you can see where there are these sick couples who just talk about politics all the time and are in total agreement. Like you see that with, you know, there's certain like Republican couples who are in total agreement, who just sit there, and I've known people like this, and and, you know, you can find these people, and you might know them, and they just sit around watching TV every night, like bitching about everything that, you know, Fox News shows them, and I'm not one of these people who's like, Fox
1: News is the worst, Fox News, you mean the worst, you mean the worst thing in the world, in the world,
0: Um, so I'm not even one of those people, but You know, Fox News is part of the same game as all the other channels is basically how I see it. And, you know, but the idea of that like Republican couple who sits around just like bitching about liberals every night. That's what they talk about. That's what they pay attention to. And they exist. And they're terrible people to be around. But, you know, the same is true for, like, these these new liberal couples who somehow see everything exactly the same way, a.k.a. the boyfriend doesn't express himself as much as he wants to, but just goes along with it for the greater good. Maybe there's some girlfriends like that, but I don't know. Not as many. Because I personally know husbands and and boyfriends and uh, of girls, and or probably of men, too, but uh, who... <laughs> who definitely don't express themselves as much as they would want, but it's also not as important to them, which is exactly what I mean for myself, where it's like, I don't even need to express myself politically to a significant other. It's fine if that's not even a part of things. You know, I don't even need to. But you just have to respect where I'm coming from, and I have to respect where you're coming from. We have to come from a presumption of innocence and a benefit of the doubt that says, I trust that you don't have nefarious intentions. And I trust that you're not stupid. I trust that you're not completely ignorant. I might disagree. But that's kind of the baseline you have to operate from. But even friends struggle with that now. The trend is for all social connections to be that way. And that's brutal. And uh, you know, it's thinking about something completely unrelated, which is that when someone says they like math, there's an assumption that they're smart. When they say they like math, that must that must mean one, they're really good at math, and two, they understand complex math. They're into calculus. If he likes math, he must be talking about calculus. But what's funny about that is you could love math but only understand addition. I only understand addition, subtraction, maybe a little bit of division, and sometimes multiplication. That describes me. I wouldn't even be able to tell you what there is beyond that. I I wouldn't even be able to tell you what there is beyond addition, subtraction, division, and multiplication. I don't even know. I don't even know what the words are, let alone what those words represent. But, you know, I don't hate math. I wasn't good at math in school. It wasn't my strong point, but I don't have any problem with it. And I actually kind of like it. Like, I don't mind tallying things up. So it's, do I love math less? I think I love math less than a lot of people. So I'm not the best example. But let's say there's a person out there, and all they understand is addition and subtraction, and they love having the opportunity to add and subtract. And if you were to ask them, they would say, sure, I love math. Addition and subtraction. I love simple math. But when someone says they love math, you assume they mean complex math. Advanced math. You might even assume they do something professionally that requires formulas. I bet you know a lot of formulas. Oh, you like math, huh? I bet you know a lot of formulas. I mean, it kind of plays into what I was talking about recently with when people say they like science. Because those things are together.
1: STEM. STEM. I'm into STEM.
0: What? What are you into? STEM! Science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. But when someone says they're into pretty much anything related to STEM, you assume they're smart. And they probably are smarter than average. They probably are more capable of understanding that way of thinking than the average person. But as I was talking about in that other episode, you know, it's also a way of signaling to people that you're smart. Because we're not allowed to say, I'm smart. Did you know I'm smart? Hey, I'm smart. Did you know? Instead, you say,
1: I love math. I love math. I love.
0: Okay, my voice is hurting. Out of all the voices I do, that's, that one really hurt. I love math. That's really painful. Um, let me. I need to take a sip of something was doing that voice worth it? No, (laughs) that that wasn't worth it. (laughs) But anyway, with, uh, you know, someone, when they say they love math, you know, you do kind of think, okay, they're probably smart because you're not allowed to say you're smart. And like, and as I talked about before, you know, a lot of what we do is trying to signal something or another, like we're always trying to signal something and that doesn't make us bad people. It just means that we want people to know something about us, especially if it's something that might reflect positively on us. But we're not allowed to do that. We're not allowed to tell somebody, I, I have really nice teeth. If In case you haven't noticed, I've got really nice teeth. I got nice teeth, baby. You a look at my teeth? You're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to share complimentary information about yourself. And people go to all kinds of lengths to do it covertly, to subtly let other people know about their virtuous qualities. And that's kind of what people do when they broadcast that they're interested in some sort of intellectual subject. And chances are they are chances are they are actually interested in that. But it's just something that people do. And I'm sure I do it too. But it's it's funny how like, we just assume though, we assume we know what they mean. And I mean, imagine saying that about music. Like, I lo- like when someone says, I love music, we don't assume that that means the most complicated, advanced, progressive music. We tend to think that about math. Oh, you're passionate about math. You must be really into those crazy formulas that look like some sort of esoteric writing. Looks like some sort of esoteric script. And you understand that? All I know is pounding nails into wood. All I know is pouring concrete. And you can tell me that you know what that is on the blackboard? The blackboard? You know, that's how I feel about it, because I don't understand that stuff. Uh, I don't, but it turns out I also don't know how to pour can, concrete <laughs> cancrete. Uh, either. But there's an assumption, though, built in where it's like, if you're into math, that means you enjoy like advanced math. But it's like you can say you like music and nobody assumes that you mean complicated music. You could like music. You could be passionate about music. And it could just be a beat. It could just be dooch, dooch, dooch. I like the beat. I like that beat. Dooch, dooch, dooch. You know, that's it could just be that on loop. And that's as musical as anything else that qualifies as music as much as any symphony, any prog rock band. And so music doesn't really have the assumption that being into it means liking it on some complex level. It doesn't even imply that you understand it because you can like math and you can be interested in science without understanding either of them and you can appreciate them on the simplest level. It doesn't really imply anything sophisticated about you. And the same is true for other interests like music, where it doesn't mean you have sophisticated taste. It doesn't mean you can read music. It doesn't mean you can play music. But to be passionate about music means that you might be into music. I mean, even as a creator, like if you told somebody that you're a musician, somebody might think that your skills are better than they are. They might think that you are a more advanced musician than you are, whereas you might just slide a power chord around. You might just use two fingers. You might know one power chord, and you just slide that around the fretboard with a bunch of distortion, and you're a musician. And influential musicians have done that. There There are influential musicians who have just played simple power chords, primitive music, and they have been pivotal in a certain genre. And they may or may not know how to do more than that. And that's kind of the amazing thing about music too, is that somebody can be a virtuoso. Somebody can can be a a complete shredder on the guitar. But for the purposes of a specific band or project, they might just play simple power chords. They might play simpler, more primitive music than they're capable of playing because the idea isn't about being impressive. It's not about being musically impressive or showing off your chops. But, the, but on the other hand, like somebody who can't do anything, somebody who isn't a virtuoso, who truly only can play that one chord, they can play in that same band. And for them, it's all they can do. But they're passionate about it. They care about it. And so it's interesting that, that two people from two completely different skill sets can both be called musicians and play the same thing. And it really has no bearing on their level of musical understanding or sophistication, you know, in a, in a traditional sense. Uh, you know, in, in a music theory sense. And it's like you could do like what if you're really extremely good at, at addition What if you can do addition as fast as a calculator shouldn't you qualify as a mathematician aren't we all mathematicians because we're all doing arithmetic you know you, you can look at things from that angle you can you can say like is there a simpler form of this that still qualifies me as that thing. You know, another one of those interests, because, you know, I don't want to get too far on some sort of anti-STEM kick, a STEM kick. Now, I don't want to come across too anti-STEM, because, you know, I pointed out recently that sometimes when people express an interest in STEM, beyond being professionally obligated, beyond like being invested personally and professionally in STEM, there's a lot of STEM fanboys. There's a STEM fandom. I was talking about the science fandom, but it's actually a STEM fandom. Science fandom is under the larger umbrella of the STEM fandom. You heard it here, folks. Don't say that I never broke no news to you. There's a STEM fandom out there. And it contains other fandoms. But I don't want to give the STEM fandom too hard of a time, because, I mean, you see it with the humanities, too. You see it in academics and the humanities, where... It's not just that telling somebody you're into math or science gives them this assumption that you're smart and you might want them to think that. Saying you're into something like, oh, I'm into philosophy. That's a loaded one too. Whenever someone tells you they're interested in philosophy, there's a decent chance they're signaling, I'm smart. So you can do it with all kinds of things. You know, you can you can signal that in any number of ways, you can signal a million different things in a million different ways. But still, those are examples of something similar where it's not STEM. But you're still using it for a similar purpose. And philosophy's tricky. And I avoid using the word philosophy in the same way I use I I avoid the word enlightenment. And again, it doesn't come from a fear of using it. Those are just examples of words that distract from the point you're making. Like if I want to talk about something that is in line with philosophy, or I want to talk about something that may or may not relate to enlightenment, sometimes it distracts from the point to throw those types of words in there. And philosophy fits into everything. Everything feeds into philosophy and philosophy feeds into everything else that to say that I'm interested in philosophy just doesn't even make sense to me anyway. Like I'm interested in other things. Like philosophy to me means, no, 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 I'm not interested in philosophy. I'm interested in other things. And that's what makes it philosophy. Philosophy isn't something unto itself. Philosophy is an interest in other things and how they fit together and how they relate. The different ways that you can look at them. I'm not trying to say that that's the only way to define the word philosophy. But for me, it's like focusing on philosophy for the sake of philosophy. It's not just that it makes no sense. I don't even know how to do it. I don't even know how you approach philosophy that way. I don't know where your entry point is. Whereas I enter something like philosophy, if I enter it at all, I don't know, I don't think about whether I'm
1: entering philosophy Hey, everybody, hold on to your seats. We're entering philosophy. (laughs) Stupid shit, man. Uh, (laughs) But,
0: uh, you know, I, I never think about it that way. But I guess what I'm saying is, like, anytime I feel like I enter into a philosophical line of thought, it is through something else that I'm interacting with or thinking of, something that is more tangible and concrete or experiential. Because philosophy, to me, has no experience to it. And that's what separates it from spiritual or mystical philosophy. I don't mean to be redundant with the word, but I just mean that's what separates, let's say, more secular philosophy from mystical philosophy is the fact that one, I believe, is experienced, whereas one is fully intellectualized. But I think you can experience that first example of philosophy, like the more dry and secular form of philosophy, I think you can access that um, through experience, too. But you can only you can only experience it. I don't know, this is getting this is getting really hard to even follow for me. <laughs> to sum it up, basically, I think that it's other things in life that give you access to philosophy. You can't just be interested in philosophy unto itself. That's just how I see it. And it's funny to me, too, when people call themselves philosophers, which I didn't even know. It was only in the last few years that I found out that people actually call themselves philosophers. That's one of those things that I don't think you can call yourself. It's, it's like saying you're enlightened it's like complimenting yourself. It's the example of things you can't say about yourself. I don't think you're allowed to call yourself a philosopher. And I think you should, a part of you should squirm inside if somebody else calls you that. And what's funny to me about a certain sort of person who, because there's, there's people who research, write about, and analyze Philosophy. They have a PhD in philosophy. They're a professor. They put a lot of work into understanding, interpreting and sharing their findings about historic philosophers. Those people should keep doing what they're doing. I'm not trying to dismiss philosophy as a pursuit, especially for the right people. And those people are even allowed to be, you know, they're even allowed to do a little what we call doing a little philosophizing themselves.
1: It's what we call doing a little philosophizing.
0: You know, I think they're allowed to even do some of that themselves, if anybody. Because, I mean, how can you study philosophers and not want to do a little philosophizing yourself, yourself? Um, But what's funny is sometimes people get into, it's it's like the old-timey guy. And I think it's often the same person. The same guy who was born in the 1980s or 90s, who cosplays as a 1920s gentleman and talks like a 1920s gentleman who spends his spare time going to websites that tell you what guys said then. It's like, oh, I'm going to learn all the slang from 100 years ago and start using it again. Hey, all the people who care are dead. All the people who talked that way are dead, boy. You want to start talking like a bunch of dead people? You're dressing like dead people and you're talking like dead people. Whatever expression you're trying to make is dead too. Trim the mustache. Take off the bowler hat. Take off the fedora. And just get back to work. Because this isn't the right thing for you to do. (laughs) So much judgment. Uh, That's what we got here though. But no, the person, the old-timey gentleman guy, the guy guy who cosplays as an old-timey gentleman, it's the same sort of guy who thinks that he has to write like a philosopher from hundreds of years ago. It's like, oh, I'm really into Nietzsche. I'm really into Hegel. So I have to write just like them. Like, even though those guys were idiosyncratic thinkers, like, even though most famous philosophers were strange men in their own right, And I'm sure their writing styles were idiosyncratic for their times. Their writing was still in the bubble of the times. Like even if even though there was something unique about the ideas they were expressing, probably the way they were phrasing them, what they were doing was probably revolutionary. It was still in the frame of that time period in which they lived. And you don't live in that time period. And that's something for people to keep in mind when they fetishize that. When they fetishize philosophers, you don't have to talk like a philosopher. You don't have to, if you want to pursue philosophy, go right ahead. But you're actually doing yourself a disservice when you think you need to sound like these philosophers from way back when. You take on this obtuse writing style. You alienate people. And maybe that's what you're trying to do anyway. Like maybe you you, don't, you aren't really trying to do anything. I don't know. Here we are. Back to the judgment, but still, still, I think this point needs to be said that it's like integrate it. It's exactly what I said about the old timey gentleman, where it's like if you look back at the 1920s and you say men were just better then. Oh, dude, things were so much better when you could smoke wherever you want. Things were so much better when men
1: just woke up and wore a three piece suit, just when they went down to get coffee, people are such slobs today. People are such slobs today. You know, you know when my when my parents were were young. You people used to dress up to go on the airplane, and now the girls are wearing yogi pants. Now the girls are wearing yogi pants. I saw a guy on the airplane in his underwear. In my in my parents' day. People wore suits and ties and dresses to get on planes. You know, that's a point that I see people make.
0: And I understand the point they're making. Like, I'm not dismissing that point, that there is something about carrying yourself as a respectable person and putting care and effort into how you conduct yourself and how you look. But it's also fantasy. It's also pure fantasy. And you can't recreate that anyway. Like, if you want to be the guy who wears a suit and tie on an airplane, be my guest. But I have some advice. Only wear that suit and tie if you're supposed to be wearing a suit and tie to whatever it is you're doing. If you're going to a business meeting, if you're going to a convention, if you're a business person. Dress up for the airplane if your duties in life require you to wear a suit or a nice dress, whatever it is you do. A pants suit. Don't wear a suit and tie just because you have this f- fantasy worldview of how things used to be when you could smoke and everybody looked nice on airplanes. Integrate it in all these examples. Integrate it in, like if you're really into long dead philosophers whose works have been translated and even after translation barely read, like anything that a modern human being can understand. And, and, and don't dismiss it. Like, I mean, I think that stuff's interesting too, but I'm just saying, don't worry about trying to sound like that guy, integrate it. If you think something's important, integrate it, do what the teachers told you to do when you were 10 years old, put it in your own words, show your work. Cause that's what you do when you integrate, let's say a philosopher's worldview into your life. What you're doing is you're showing your work. You're not just trying to be that philosopher. Like, oh, when I write about philosophy, I try to sound like, you know, a Heidegger. You know, that's not, that's not the way to do it. Integrate it. If it's important, integrate it. At the very least, interpret it your own way. And so it's just always funny to me when someone's like, you know, and I mean, you see it with tons of things. I mean, you see it even in the way As someone who follows music, I mean, I don't follow it that closely because for whatever reason, following music just brings out the beast in me. I just can't get around it. Something about music, something about musicians brings out the beast in me. But you'll see it even with people who are trying to recreate previous eras. Like there are 40-year-old men today who are dressing the same way that 15-year-olds dressed in crossover thrash bands in the mid-80s. Like in the mid 80s, there were 16 year olds wearing like hats with the bill flipped up and like high, high top tennis shoes and like skin tight ripped jeans. And that was what they did. They were creating their own little niche. And today there are 40 year old men who got together and were like, dude, let's start a crossover trash band and dress like 15 year olds did back then. And do it if you feel, you know, if that's your thing, do it. But it's just like, why not integrate it? Like, what are you hoping to recreate? And then they'll talk that way. And I know people like this. I'm not close to them, but I know them. And then they start trying to talk like 15-year-olds talked in 1985. You know, it's like, you're not a 15-year-old Hesher. You weren't even born yet. Or maybe you were. If you're 40, you were born. But you get my point. My point is just that it's like, what are you even trying to do? Like, when I look at pictures of, like, crossover thrash bands, like a genre I don't even care about, but when I look at old pictures, I'm like, they look cool. That's a cool era. For these dudes with, like, long hair to have these, like, caps with the big flipped-up bill, high-top tennis shoes, like, they have a distinct style, which is why people are still responding to it. The reason why a 40-year-old man in 2021 thinks it's a good idea to try to recreate teenage crossover thrash 40 years later is because... There is something iconic and cool about it and he probably genuinely enjoys it but it's just like what are you trying to accomplish by just copying it are you doing theater I'm very critical about this kind of stuff because to me it just adds a bunch of pointless noise it adds I don't mean the music either I just mean like cultural noise and it's just I don't know it's the same as the person wearing old-timey clothes But uh, yeah, I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap this one up. I feel I didn't really talk about any of the things that I was thinking about. So I'll save those for another time because they're, they're actually points I want to make at some point. But this ended up being kind of another along the same lines of the recent ones. I don't mind if there's themes running through these or if there are certain periods where I focus on, you know, kind of a theme. You know, obviously, most of this show revolves around the concept of identity. And one of the reasons for that is because we think that's what everything boils down to. Like, when we think about reducing our life down to its simplest components, or just its simplest component, for most of us, The furthest down you can go is you. You, The person in your body with your name, your interests, the place that you're in right now. That's the farthest down that most people can, if if you you said break down your life to the simplest possible component. And they'll probably just say me. And then if you were to ask them, who's me? Who are you? Who's me? Who are you? Who's me, who are you? Who's me, who are you? Now if you were to say that, you know, someone would be like, Well, I'm I'm Eric. Who's Eric? Well, I'm I'm a stonefelt and I, I come from this town and I I, I lived here and I, I'm interested in this and, and you know that and it's it's not that it's it's not there's nothing to that, but it's just that first of all I think you can break things down further. But you don't know how to. I mean, I think that's where a lot of this, a lot of the stuff that we talk about that I talk about on this show comes from is that it's like trying to break that down further. And you can see where American Western politics today feel like they've broken things down to the smallest component, but they too hit a roadblock at identity. And that's where all this identity politics stuff comes in is that it's like they were trying, you know, giving them the benefit of the doubt which I try to do again, presumption of innocence, benefit of the doubt. While there are a lot of bad actors in politics, and it attracts more bad actors than just about anything else, except for maybe musicians. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, you know, politics attracts a lot of bad actors. So as a result, you should be naturally skeptical. But the people themselves, the average citizen who has political beliefs, who votes. They don't necessarily come from a nefarious place. Some of them do, but I would say they're in the minority. And you know, so those people, though, because this this these, this identity politics, it comes from the people. It comes from colleges. It comes from certain form certain ways of analyzing society, especially complex societies. And so the idea was like, how do we break? human interest down into its simplest possible components. And giving them the benefit of the doubt, they were like, well, identity, your group identity, like the group identities that you can't avoid being part of your ethnic group, maybe your economic class, but obviously, a lot of emphasis has been placed on ethnicity, sexual orientation, sexual preference, whatever the term is now, the dictionary is changing it as I speak, as I speak, the dictionary is updating its definitions. But you can see though, we're like giving them the benefit of the doubt. They were trying to do what you might do if somebody asked you to break your life down into its simplest possible component. Well, it's me. And what's me? Well, your idea of yourself is your sense of identity. And so when you do that on a larger level with social politics, you're going to end up with identity, too, both on a personal level as well as a group identity level. So I understand why people get there. But you can break things down further than that. You can get to, I don't know about the essence, but you can get closer to it. But it's difficult. It's a real trial. It's a real trial and it's not entirely fun. And I believe it's necessary though. Otherwise, I wouldn't continue to talk about it. I wouldn't continue to talk about this idea of breaking identity down. Finding that thing beneath the identity around the identity. That part of you that is more essential than your identity. I just, I can't in good conscience stop pushing for that. Pushing for that process that helps me. Because again, this show is about preaching what I need. This show is as much about my own personal process as anybody's. More about me than anything, obviously. I talk about me, me, me all the time. And what I'm trying to do, and I feel like I've gotten glimpses of it is, is find that thing that is beneath my identity, but you find out it's actually everywhere else except where your identity is, but it also inhabits your identity too. Like, like I didn't mean accept as in your identity isn't included. I just mean that it, there's something that, that permeates you that isn't dependent on that, that isn't dependent on your name, that isn't dependent on what bubbles you fill in when you're voting or identifying yourself, of telling people who you are, of what you like for that matter. And I believe that the more people who can get below that, Who can kind of like sneak in under that little crack? There's a little crack at the bottom of the door, and it's hard to get down there. It's not like playing Limbo. It's the very end of the Limbo game, actually. It is like playing Limbo, but it's at the very end of the game where the bar is so low to the ground that you don't think you can possibly do it. And I'm the Limbo champion. I walk like a crab. I crawl under the bar when it's like two inches above the ground somehow. No, but you look at that and you're like, I can't do that. This is where it ends. But I think you can go through there. I think you can pass through. I think the fact that there is a crack there at all at least tells you that there's something on the other side. There is a passage or an opening of some kind beyond that crack. And that might be the glimpse that I'm talking about. When I say I've gotten glimpses of something beyond, below, around, yet also including my sense of identity, well, that might just be a glimpse, and that might be all I'm going to get, because I run into the same roadblocks as everybody. Sometimes I find it harder to get past the fact that this is me this is my name this is what I like this is my body sometimes I find it very difficult to get past that too but just having that glimpse of something else and it's not foreign it's familiar you're a part of it too I just try to keep that in mind